You are listening to Hungry Books, a podcast about the best books ever written on the subject of food. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food history writer, cook, and author. And each episode, I present a book that will change your life. It is amazing to think that a single fruit cultivar has the power to unlock the history of empires, agriculture, gastronomy, humanity's spiritual relationship with nature, science, rituals, fashion, and leisure. But that's what apples do. They have fed our fascination with controlling nature and driving our obsession to develop scientific methods to achieve it. And today, we will take a deep dive into the apple world. Well, hello there, hungry book lovers. I am getting things back on track on this side of the microphone, just as the world seems to finally begin to get a hold on an actual chance to control this pandemic. Hooray! Nature hasn't wasted any time making the most of the absence of our annoying presence and took a much-deserved break. Our relationship with nature has always been a complex one, because unlike any other species on the world, we have dedicated our entire existence to alter it in all sorts of ways, and almost always for our own benefit. These reflections are actually in line with the rather surprising and utterly fascinating history of apples as told by Pete Brown in the book The Apple Orchard, the history of our most English fruit. Perhaps unknown to most of us, this fruit of Asian origin has a long and meandering history and dissemination that led it to be at the center of European cultures and by extent to Western mythologies, playing a key role in the shaping of the identities of so many cultures. The popularization of books that specializes on the study of a specific ingredient, crop or even utensils are great at teaching us very particular stories. However, they have the risk of narrowing the scope and can also limit our chances to understand the cultural, sociological, gastronomic, and even philosophical side of food studies. This book doesn't quite fit a specific category, because there is a lot of botany, history, politics, taste, farming, mysticism, and cultural history in it, which is precisely what makes it great. And of course, that is also why I'm such a fan of Pete Brown, who introduces us to the wondrous universe of traditional orchards, a delicate man and nature-made ecosystem, where not only apple trees grow, but also life in the form of more than 2,000 insects that call it home. Pete's extreme allergy to apples is only equal to his passion for the craft of apple cultivation and traditional cider making. His critically acclaimed books have become key references to understanding the history of drinks, drinking and brewing in Britain. So, make sure to grab an apple, or even better, a pint of cider, and let's get on with the show.
So I really want to make the case of why I think this book has played a remarkable service to food writing, but more importantly, to make visible the traditions and many social interactions that apple farming and craft side of brewing creates. It has a total of 22 chapters divided into seven parts that takes us through the whole farming process. And no, before you wonder, it doesn't come with photos. But don't worry, Pete Brown's vivid descriptions really make up for it. The book slowly unravels several storylines, including the Arthurian legends that take place in the county of Somerset in southwest England the intertwined Celtic and Norse myths that attributed apples supernatural powers of wisdom and eternal life, and it explores why for England and also, curiously, America, apples seem to be at the core of their national identity. Now, before we jump into the contents of this book, let me tell you a bit more about Pete Brown. Pete was born in Barnsley, in West Riding, Yorkshire, a place that is sadly famous for what is not. So it is not a coal mining city because it had a steep and painful decline until the industry ran into a halt. Pete is a journalist, author, broadcaster and consultant. He has worked for Stella Artois and Heineken and has been named British Beer Writer of the Year in three occasions. Also, he is the current chair for the British Guild of Beer Writers. He has written many essays, articles and columns, but also is the author of nine books, including The Pub, a cultural institution from country inns to craft beer bars and corner locals, The World's Best Cider, Taste, Tradition and Terroir from Somerset to Seattle. The book I'm presenting to you, of course, is one of his best sellers and one I most definitely want to feature in the future, Pie Fidelity in Defense of British Food, which is simply freaking good. Right then, so let's see what's inside this book that brought us here today. Part 1, Blossoming, covers the early origins of apples, giving us an introduction to the apple-producing regions of Britain and the echoing presence of ancient pagan rites tied into agricultural cycles. And this part also takes us back to the Old Testament and untangles a very confusing yarn ball that are oral traditions, allegories and centuries of bad cultural translations. In part two, fruiting, he explains that this is an activity that occurs between May and June. And on this part, he takes a closer look into the botanical characteristics of apples, which are members of the rosacea family. But oddly enough, neither roses produce such delicious fruits, nor the blooms of apples smell remotely similar to common garden roses. And beyond biblical parables and religious rhetoric around apples, 
Brown and many others before him have been sufficiently intrigued to ponder and try to find clues about the possible actual location of the Garden of Eden. Spoiler alert, there is none. But in any case, it seems that if it ever existed one, it was likely to have been located somewhere between modern-day Egypt and Palestine. Part 3. Ripening. It opens with a fantastic crash course in the transition from the domestication of edible plants to the fine art of horticulture, by which specialized farmers manipulate the genetic stock of plants to create hybrid cultivars. We are specifically introduced to the art of grafting, known and perfected by the Romans over 2,000 years ago. But, Pete reminds us, Creating new cultivars from existing varieties with scientific precision is a far from over activity, as the East Mauling Research Station in Kent can proudly ascertain. Part 4. Harvesting Moving forward in our agricultural calendar, we reach September and October, where the year's hard work, if done properly, will pay its dividends. We begin with the legend of King Arthur, the cornerstone of the nation's myths of origin. What does he have to do with apples, anyway? Well, <laughs> in short, everything. For any fan of Arthurian legends out there, you might remember that it's Avalon, the place where Excalibur, the famous sword, was forged. Avalon, where the King Arthur was taken to recover from mortal wounds after the Battle of Camlan, and Avalon, where he returned later in life to either die or live for eternity, depending on which version you read. But the important thing about Avalon is that it was an island surrounded by either a lake or marshes in which many trees grew, whose magical fruits had the power of healing and even possibly granting immortality. Those fruits are, of course, apples. Later, we go again on a road trip, this time to a hill known as Glastonbury Tor to visit none other than the famous Avalon Orchard, now run by the National Trust. And from there, ahead we go to another apple-producing region that is in Hertfordshire, next to Wales, where we learn about the history of apple picking and its dependence on itinerant workers that will travel the country harvesting all sorts of produce. And to this day, this hasn't changed much. Now, bear in mind that this book was published in 2016, before the word Brexit even existed. So, when reading this section, it becomes all too evident the blow that the end of free movement will bring to the agro-industry in the UK. Also in this section, he highlights the supermodern obsession with perfection and crop uniformity that only adds up to the stress for farmers who are subject to a very flawed market that severely punishes them when they let nature get away with quote-unquote imperfections. Part 5. Celebrating we get to know and understand the importance of the Victorian and Edwardian obsession with amateur apple cultivation that resulted in the creation of hundreds of cultivars listed in the National Fruit Collection, which was first published in 1826. 
And we also get to discover the history of England's most loved cooking apple, or one of them, which is Bramley. We discover that we owe this delicious cultivar, queen of crumbles, pies and chutneys, to a young Victorian lady from Suttle in Nottinghamshire. And although modern-day British folk don't grow apple trees nearly as much as they used to do 220 years ago, there are still hundreds of harvest festivals all around the kingdom. Part 6. Transforming. October and November are hectic months for apple growers, as they have to work quickly to harvest and sell or process apples. However, the modern-day global demand means all fruit crops, not only apples, are harvested early and quite often stored in oxygen-deprived facilities to preserve them for longer than a year before arriving at your local supermarket. And then we reach Pete Brown's truly favorite part, brewing. Natural fermentation, you see, is a natural process discovered by humans thousands of years ago. And since then, we have mastered the fine art of controlled brewing for purely hedonistic goals, of course. And we're educated in the delicate art that is craft brewing, simply known to our ancestors as cider making. Like with beer or wine, apples also reflect the characteristics of the terroir in the specific type of acidity, sweetness and tannin that can produce a juice that is sweet, sharp, bitter or bittersweet. A rainbow of flavor possibilities that you simply don't get in commercially mass-produced cider with added preservatives, stabilizers, flavors and color. Yuck! The seventh and last part of the book, Slumbering, ends with an equally fascinating display of ancient traditions that are ever so present in the dreamy rural agricultural areas of England and take place between November and January. An orchard, like I mentioned, a man-made ecosystem, responds to seasons with clockwork precision. Trees are living creatures that put all their resources at work to adapt and harvest is a long and stressful period as the plant pours nutrients and effort into producing each fruit to ensure its survival. So ahead of winter, they lose all the foliage to avoid unnecessary waste of resources and falls into a long, cold slumber letting lichen take over, allowing insects and animals to take shelter in their branches and roots as they all brace to survive until the next spring. This slumber of the trees is called a state of dormancy, in which horticulturalists need to provide extra care to look after them and keep the trees healthy while they can't fend for themselves. So root Pruning is a key part of this, and we learn that it involves a carefully trimming of branches and roots to remove damaged areas and to help the trees concentrate nutrients even more. Also, grafting takes place in this period, that is combining rootstock with stems to help maintaining the genetic diversity and give apple trees a fighting chance to continue building natural resistance against pests and other threats. 
and this will force a strong reaction from the tree and in the springtime they will regrow even more vigorously as they will search to harvest light and feed from the rich soil. And the book closes with a chapter in this section that is excitedly called Awakening with an exclamation mark, in which we are introduced to the pagan ancient rite of wassail or wassailing. The word itself is an Anglo-Saxon greeting that translates roughly to wishing someone good health. It was also used as a toasting phrase, and to make things more confusing, it is also the name of a ritual by which farmers gather at apple orchards to drink, sing, dance, and give trees a good beating. You know, to ensure a good harvest for the coming year, of course. Folk traditions are still going strong in many parts of the kingdom, especially those tied into the farming cycles in rural areas. Eccentric as it might seem, there is a clear logic into wassailing practices. It does have a ritualistic connotation by which the whole affair is guided by a druid. Not a full-time druid, though. Uh, these are modern ones that also have day jobs. And a virgin wassail queen, usually a local beauty chosen for this celebration. At some point, there is a solemn toast and it is offered to the orchard so cider is poured on the roots of a tree. Then boys carry on what is called the apple howling, using sticks to beat the trees. Now, before you get alarmed, the author warns us that folk historians have thoroughly explained this ritualized practice, rooted into the nothing glamorous but very necessary activity of waking up unsuspecting insects who have crawled into the roots and bark to hibernate. So they run away in a disoriented panic, preventing with this any potential harm to the trees while they still remain dormant. There are also a whole lot of different characters that take part in the wassailing, like Saint George, the Devil, musicians or mummers, and Morris dancers. And I bet you're pulling faces thinking like, whoa, 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 what are you talking about? So mummering and Morris dancing are both activities in which people dress in special costumes and in the case of mummering they perform classic tales, while Morris dancers play instruments and do specially choreographed dances. These two practices date back to the Middle Ages. Let me play for you an audio from the John O'Gaunt Morris dancers at the wassailing day in a community orchard in Lancaster back in 2013. Now, let's take a look at some highlights of this book. I really enjoyed learning that in the modern-day region of Kazakhstan is where people domesticated apples and have been enjoying them for at least 4,000 years. 
And while cereals really took over the light spot on the agricultural revolution of the Neolithic, apples, like no other fruit, were indeed granted an unmatched symbolic role across cultures and continents, even across time. The mythologized apple has been present in Western culture for a long time, and yes, for certain narratives it was put on the map thanks to dodgy translations from the Bible, which, let's not forget, it's a compilation of mostly orally transmitted stories. At least the Old Testament really is. So, let's explore more about this. Pete Brown tells us that the alleged Garden of Eden, on a closer look, is really an orchard where Adam was put to look after it. Now, you know how the story goes, and about the restrictions imposed and how reverse psychology worked at its finest. But then, how can we be so sure that the forbidden fruit was indeed an apple? Because, the author says, for all we know, it could also have been a fig. Some other people have suggested that there could have been a pear or a citrus, among many other strong contenders. But the fact is that someone decided that it was an apple, and the rest became stuff of legends. From Sir Isaac Newton's famous epiphany about the theory of gravity, William Tell's don't try at home archery trick, Snow White's temporary fall down, the Beatles' own record label, and all the way to Macintosh's Apple logo. Apples, physical or otherwise, entered our culture to stay. And the book also tells us of some other rituals, including Beltane. And if there's any weekends listening, I bet you are squeaking in glee. To understand this ancient practice, Pete Brown takes us on a road trip to the green county of Hertfordshire, where New Age rituals collide with reimagined druid traditions, summer solstice, apple orchards, and New Age hippies. What more bricolage can you ask for? But what exactly is Beltane? Beltane is celebrated between the spring equinox and the summer solstice, making the transition from spring to summer, which is welcomed at dawn. This festivity is of Celtic origin, and it was used to celebrate the goddess of fertility. People used to make bonfires, present offers, play music and dance, among other things. Modern-day druids still carry on this practice and very often is related with agriculture because praying for nature's blessings for orchards and livestock is always a good idea. Just for educational purposes, here is a little soundbite of a 2016 Beltane held at the prehistorical site of Thornboroughhenge in North Yorkshire, England. I ring this bell to cast a spell. Let sacred time begin. One, two, three. Hail Brigantia, so will it be.
Now, I am almost sure that many of us have seen the efforts from farmers and chefs championing seasonal and organic eating. The truth is that most of us urban dwellers buy really whatever is available and what we can actually afford. Added to that, the food industry has taught us that fruits must always have a consistent size, taste, texture, and even have a perfect size for our lunch boxes. And if any of these characteristics seem remotely different, that means that there's something wrong with it. Ugh. Well, the book actually does a good job at educating us about this and how harmful it is for farmers. Also, we are introduced to the three flavor dimensions of apples, So let's take a closer look on that. A so-called eating apple, also an apple for juicing, almost invariably will have a balance between sweetness and acidity with little or no tanning. And what tannins are is a group of biomolecules that have astringent flavors with crazy levels of alkaloids. And that's what can give you a sort of dry and raspy sensation on the tongue like a very young wine or a sharp granny smith or bramley apple. And related to this, we learn that the best cider is made with bittersweet apples that are turned into delicious crisp cider, thanks to the magic of saccharomyces, which are yeasts that do what they do best when in touch with the apple's sugary compounds in the brewing process, and that is when they feed like crazy while fermenting the juice, releasing carbon dioxide, resulting in a wonderful and perfectly apple boozy liquid. I really like how Pete presents in a matter-of-fact way how apple growing went from being a pastime for the upper and middle class Victorian and Edwardians to revolutionize fruit farming and fruit consumption in England. And that goes to say that is yet another thing we owe to these industrious folk that almost single-handedly modernize our current civilization. The legacy of these enthusiastic people are organizations like the Royal Horticultural Society, founded in 1804, and the Catalogue of the National Fruit Collection and the East Malling Research Station, which was founded in 1912, and is the world's leading horticultural institution with particular emphasis on the classification, testing, and standardization of apple tree rootstocks. And you can look them up, they do pretty impressive work. And now let me share a little bit of the history of how the glorious Bramley apple came to be. Brown tells us the story of how Mary Ann Brailsford grew a tree from a peep she planted in her own garden in 1809. And then a latter occupant of that property by the name of Mr. Matthew Bramley continued looking after the tree and its delicious apples, which he decided to register as the Bramley seeding in 1837. This loved cultivar is still vigorously celebrated today as it was back in Victorian times, as proved by the annual Bramley Apple Festival from Saddle in Nottinghamshire. Another interesting highlight is cider making. Now, fermentation itself is 
no doubt a naturally occurring process, but surely observed and imitated by our primitive ancestors to make alcoholic drinks. According to a famous pommelier called Jane Payton, that is like a sommelier, but for cider, there is evidence that the Celts in Britain made cider from crab apples around 3,000 years before Christ, and this tradition has continued for literally thousands of years. But cider, for whatever reason, never seemed to enjoy the same attention and status as wine, ale, or beers. This has changed quite significantly in recent years. So now let me give you my five reasons why I think you should read this book. Numero uno. Well, the style and first-person narrative of this jewel becomes in itself a way to make accessible to us how we can approach a subject that is seemingly innocent, like the story of a fruit, to unveil layer after layer of social history, science, food and culture. It really transports us through time and beautiful locations, experiencing through the author's writing the life and world of apple orchards, unveiling a whole world of folklore and practices that will otherwise be unknown to many of us if not put in context in the making of this book. Number two. Through this book, we really get to know with clear enough explanations the history of English farming, its economic and social value, and the challenges it faces. I have to say that since it is 2020, and at the moment of writing and recording this episode, we don't really know how the future of the UK will look like, especially for the agricultural sector after the Brexit negotiations are finalised. So we will have to wait months to actually begin to see what the new reality will be like for the future of apple orchards. Reason number three. I really liked how we are introduced to the composition of cultural landscapes created and shaped by humans over thousands of years. We have taken agriculture for granted for so long that we tend to forget the delicate balance that needs to be maintained. We are educated with patience and detail about the work of entomologists helping farmers understand that pesticides are really the best way to ruin nature's work and that the future of our food system depends on the success of bumblebees, bees, moths, ladybirds and thousands more insects that maintain nature's perfect balance. At the same time, the book debunks the idea of organic produce as clean and environmentally ethical, because the truth is that we are really a long way from it. Number four. I particularly enjoy the passage about Johnny Appleseed, which is the heavily mythologized story of John Chapman, who was born around 1774, just before the start of the War of the American Independence. He was allegedly responsible for planting apple peeps all over America. This Mr. John Chapman was a man that belonged to an obscure and fanatic evangelical Swedish sect, for which he worked as a preacher. 
Anyway, he really was a proto-hippie and did go walking barefoot through the wilderness, planting peeps, and his story might have been heavily embellished to the point of disnification. <laughs> But the truth is that toffee apples, apple pie, apple juice, and apple cider, and all things apple, remain a strong component to America's culinary identity. Oh, the Lord's been good to me. So I thank the Lord for giving me the things I need The sun, the rain and the apple seed Oh, the Lord's been good to me And last but not least, reason numero cinco Let me read a lovely passage So here we go The bots in the orchard are tight and scaly, like the spears of dragon claws. A few weeks from now, they will begin to swell and develop a grey fur known as silver tip. As the bot pushes open, the first shoots will appear in a tiny silver or green tip. They emerge in tight clusters as the days grow warmer. New trees will be planted too. On the trees, leaf buds and blossom buds will start to look very distinct from one another. Tiny individual leaves, known as mouse ear, will begin to appear. The clusters of blossoms will separate out. Finally, they will crack to reveal King Pink, the first thing of the riot of color to come. And the cycle has begun once more. This book is really a joy to read for any apple lover, but also it is an amazing introduction to understanding the cultural, historical and human aspects of traditional agriculture. Pete Brown uses the apple orchard as a metaphor to illustrate the fragile future of our food system and holds tight the hand of the reader as he takes us to meet the names and the faces of horticulturalists, entomologists, cider makers and folklore enthusiasts to show us that while it is true that an orchard is an ecosystem that exists thanks to the collaboration of man and nature, it is also a cultural constellation that tells our very own human story and relationship with the natural world. Now, because I know you are itching to read this book by yourself, waste no time and check these episode's notes. The name is The Apple Orchard, the story of our most English fruit by Pete Brown. Pete is actually very active on Twitter, where you can often find him ranting and getting winded at the idiocy that Brexit is and how it can potentially destroy domestic farming and brewing industries. He does so by providing context and very enjoyable blog posts. So make sure to give him a follow. I have left for you links of his website and social media as well on the notes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hungry Books, which was written and produced by me, Rocio Carvajal. The show will return next January. In the meantime, if you didn't know, I also produced Paz de Chipotle podcast, which is a show about Mexico's gastronomic traditions, and there is a link for you to check it out. 
And finally, I would love it if you could help me get the word out about this podcast, share it with someone. Uh, you can write a little review, rate it with loads of stars so more people can find it and enjoy it. Also connect with me always and forever on Instagram. Find the show as Hungry Books Podcast or also you can follow me on my other account, rocio.carvajalc and my email is hello at pasachipotle.com. Well, stay safe this winter. Make sure to get loads of apple cider to see you through. Binge listen to previous episodes. Get the books. And, well, let's just count the hours until 2020 is finally over. Well, that's it for me and for this episode and this year. Stay hungry.